You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Essentially, this revolution to the small-scale, local, decentralized, and renewable resources is really affecting every aspect of how the electric power system is operated. Definitely, I have the utmost confidence. There are no theoretical limitations. It's just one great big engineering challenge. For June 8th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the energy transition proceeds and more variable renewable power generation displaces conventional thermal generators that produce power with certain characteristics, grid operators need to take care to maintain the strict operational limits of the grid for things like voltage, frequency, and short-circuit in-feed inertia. To do this, grid operators are procuring so-called stability services and making other enhancements to the grid that ultimately make it more stable, not less, despite what opponents of the transition might claim. Germany has been the most notable example of this in Europe over the past decade, as it integrated a growing share of wind and solar on its power grid, while becoming the most reliable grid in Europe in the process. But now Great Britain is taking pole position and modernizing its grid for the clean energy future. Not only does it operate the fastest decarbonizing electricity network in the world, in furtherance of its plans to start operating a zero-carbon grid by 2025, it has also recently achieved several important, first-in-the-world, technical accomplishments. Its transmission grid operator, known as National Grid ESO, has implemented cutting-edge tools that allow it to accurately measure inertia across its system and to provide stability without needing to increase generation. And it is providing that stability in two ways. One, by using grid-forming inverters that produce synthetic inertia, and two, by using synchronous condensers that are not connected to a prime mover. In other words, just the spinning mass part of a generator without the combustion turbine. And in another world-first achievement, it has actually written the specification for using grid-forming inverters into its grid code. And if all of that sounds like Greek to you, yes, this is a highly technical episode, which I have given a geek rating of 9. If you want to brush up on grid power engineering concepts before listening to this episode, I recommend that you start with our Energy Basics mini-series, in particular episode 126 about how power generators and the grid work, and then episode 55 on voltage stability, and then episode 153 on grid forming inverters. Then return to this one. To explain how National Grid ESO is going about these transformational changes to the British bulk power system, we are privileged to welcome to today's show Julian Leslie, Head of Networks and Chief Engineer at National Grid ESO. Not only does he explain all these concepts, he lays out the deliberate strategy that the company is taking to ensure that it can deliver on Great Britain's decarbonization objectives while maintaining system stability and saving British consumers a great deal of money. I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on the show, and I know that you'll learn a lot from today's conversation. Then in the news segment, we'll recognize the enormous expansion of wind, solar, and storage projects awaiting interconnections in the UK and the US. We'll note a new record for wind generation in the UK. We'll take a look at the outlook for global natural gas consumption this year. And we'll check out Denmark's plan to switch to district heating and heat pumps to displace Russian gas. But before we go to the interview, announcements, 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 we'd like to extend a warm welcome to our latest group licensee, GE Onshore Wind. 
a unit of GE Renewable Energy, one of the world's leading wind turbine suppliers and a subsidiary of the General Electric conglomerate. GE Onshore Wind is a major player in the global wind industry, and we're very pleased to have them listening to the show. Welcome. And now, our conversation with Julian Leslie, recorded April 27th, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Julian, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, great to be here. Today we're going to talk about how the UK plans to achieve its objectives for decarbonizing grid power, including some really interesting innovations in its wholesale market and the operational codes of its grid. But first, just for the avoidance of any potential confusion, why don't you explain for our listeners how National Grid ESO is organized and regulated and what is the relationship that it has with National Grid, the utility company? Yes, so National Grid ESO here in Great Britain is the electricity system operator for all of GB. So that includes the countries of England, Wales and Scotland. And in terms of how we're regulated, we're regulated by the national regulator, Ofgem, and they give us our license to operate and make sure that we have the wherewithal, the resources to do what it is that we need to do. So we do operate the Great Britain's transmission network. What we don't do, though, is we don't own the assets. So we operate the market. And we do the real-time operation and the planning of the network, but we don't actually own the assets. So much like the ISOs and the RTOs that you see in the US. Okay, great. And as the ESO, we have sort of been on this journey now since since the early 2000s, where we've been looking to decarbonize the grid in GB. And we're one of the fastest decarbonizing grid systems in the world with a 66% reduction in our carbon intensity of electricity produced since 2014 to where we are today. And what we're talking about today, I guess, is the activities that we're doing that's going to push that even further so that by 2025, we can operate for a few hours at totally zero carbon. And then to meet the government objectives in 2035, to operate the system at 100% zero carbon 100% of the time. Okay, so National Grid ESO has no direct commercial interest in this stuff, and it basically functions as a government regulatory body. Is that fair? Yeah, although today we are still part of National Grid, although we are a legally separate entity within the National Grid group. So as part of that, we are on the stock market and therefore investors can invest in National Grid, of which the ESO, the electricity system operator, is part of that. Although just the other week, that is changing. So in the next 18 months to two years, we will be a public corporation, so owned by a government, but at an arm's length. Oh, interesting. So we will have the right to operate under the government's control, but our regulatory structure, our ability to do work and our accountabilities will all be set by Ofgem, by the regulator, as pretty much as they are today. Gotcha. Okay. Well, as the energy transition progresses and more variable renewable power generation is introduced to the system and displaces conventional thermal generators that churn out power with certain characteristics, Grid operators, like National Grid ESO, need to take care to provision what are sometimes called stability services to maintain the very strict operational limits of the grid. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, how you're providing those services in a system that is increasingly powered by variable renewables. So maybe you could just start by explaining to our audience what stability services are and what's needed to accommodate more variable renewable generation. Sure. So stability services are some things that the system operators around the world haven't had to think about because the way that power has been produced until today using large rotating machines, whether they be gas or coal or nuclear, that they provide certain physical characteristics such as short circuit infeed, fault level contributions, and also inertia. 
As we move to these more renewable sources, which are connected to the grid system via some power electronics through something called an inverter, then we lose those sort of natural physical characteristics of the conventional power plant. So as system operators, we need to ensure that as we decarbonize the systems and as we get more and more renewables connected using these black boxes, these inverters, that actually we find ways in which we can replace the loss of that synchronous generation providing those services and replace that with other alternative solutions. And that's the work that we're doing and what we have done over the last year, 18 months within the ESO here in GB. Okay, so for those of our listeners who may have not listened to episode 55, which was our super geeky show on voltage stability, (laughs) or episode 126 about how the grid works, which is part of our Energy Basics mini-series, would you give us a brief refresher on what exactly inertia is? Yeah, there's two ways to think of inertia. I mean, physically what it is, it's a rotating mass. So in a conventional power plant, you've got the turbines, you've got the generation itself, all spinning at synchronous speed with the grid system. And when you get a disturbance on the grid system, that rotating mass continues to operate. So if you think of a child's spinning top, which I'm not sure is so popular in the US, but certainly back in my day here in GB, a spinning top, you press this thing up and down and you get this spinning top up to speed and it makes a bit of a musical sound. And as you take your hand away from that toy, it continues to spin and continues to make this musical sound for a few seconds until the inertia declines and then it topples over and the thing stops. The other way to think about inertia is to think about a system with lots of inertia. It's a bit like a steam train on a railway track that once a thing is moving, it it withstands a lot of shocks and a lot of disturbances and it just keeps plowing on through. Whereas your heavily inverter-based renewable system is much more like a motorbike. It can be up and running and it can run straight and be safe and secure. But as it gets buffeted by the wind from the side or whatever, then you get those bit of a wobbles. Mm. And what we're trying to do with inertia on the system is trying to make sure that we have enough strength in the system, a bit like the steam train, to sort of make sure that we get some of those products and some of those services such that the system can withstand those side winds, those generation trips, the lightning faults on the transmission system, and the system remains robust and secure. That's an interesting analogy. I hadn't heard the motorbike analogy before. I like it. Well, okay, so how do you measure and maintain system stability on the national grid ESO system? Again, this is something that system operators around the world have not had to worry about measuring it, because as long as your generation was running to meet demand, you inevitably got inertia and short-circuit infeed. Right. However, a couple of years ago, we recognized that the need to measure this, to understand how close to the cliff edge we really are on managing inertia on the system, to drive down costs for the consumer, that if we can identify where the cliff edge is, then we can operate much more closely to it. So to date, what we've been doing, we use data that we feed into spreadsheets. We run some algorithms sort of offline almost to sort of understand where we see the inertia going and what other machines or other devices we need to procure in order to manage that in real time. But what we've done over the last 12, 18 months is we've worked with two providers, one of which is a company called Reactive Technology. And they have built the largest ultra capacitor in the world up in the northeast of England. And what that does, it pulses power across the grid. And they have these very high accuracy, what they call XMU measurement units dotted around the network that measure the frequency up to 48,000 times a second. Hmm. 
And because you know the disturbance is being placed on the system, you can use these XMU units to measure the impact. And by looking at those two things, then there's a complex algorithm that works out what your real-time inertia must be at that very millisecond on the grid system. Hmm. So it's a bit like using, if you think about a submarine, an underwater sonar or a fishing boat or whatever, it's a bit like that. It's sending out a pulse. And then by seeing what it receives across the network, it's able to calculate and get a vision or a view as to what is going on. That's fascinating. Is this something that's been done before to inject a signal like this and then try to sense it on the grid? No, this is the first time anywhere in the world that this has been done. And and we've worked very closely with Reactive Technology as a partner to understand their technology, how it works, but for them also to understand how we operate the system today, but also how we're going to operate the system into the future. Okay. So as I say, Bits of this kit has been commissioned. Uh, we're working through this summer to bring all of the bits of kit together to start to get the first bits of data and information out of this process. But certainly as we get into this coming winter, we should have a very, very clear view as to what is the real inertia on the system in real time. Hmm. But because it is the first in the world, we've also developed a second tool working with GE, General Electric. And what they have been doing is working to take data from our systems in pretty much real time. And this measures frequency and power flow changes between regions across Britain. And it does about 50 times a second. And again, so it's not pulsing electrical charge into the system like the reactive technologies one is, but it is looking at changes on the system, understanding, therefore, what the impacts of that should be and measuring those impacts and therefore using machine learning. And then it, it then tells us what our inertia is now. But more importantly, using that machine learning piece, it also talks about it and forecasts what it might be in the hours to come, in the 24 hours to come. So again, we can much better plan for bringing on conventional power plants. If we're short on inertia, we've got the time to identify which is the best one and in the best location. Hmm. So what we hope to do by having these two tools, because both of them are first in the world sort of developments, and comparing that with our sort of offline Excel spreadsheet almost that we use today, that between those three pieces of information, we'll get a real deep understanding. And all three of those tools working together will help improve the data, the analysis, and the information that each of them can provide us. Gotcha. Okay, so on January 31st, Ofgem, the UK grid regulator, updated its grid code concerning converter-connected technologies, including renewables and interconnectors, to allow them to provide stability services. And I guess, in this sense, converter is equivalent to what we normally hear as inverter. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. (laughs) Okay. So previously, those services were only provided by synchronous generators, as you mentioned earlier, like conventional thermal power plants with a big spinning mechanical mass. And we discussed grid-forming inverters in episode 153, so our listeners who listen to that are certainly aware of the technical challenges involved in integrating these resources and transitioning from a grid where system inertia is provided by synchronous generators to one where it's provided by grid-forming inverters that produce what is sometimes called synthetic inertia. Mm -hmm. But perhaps you could explain the significance of this change to the grid code. I mean, this is a real significant world-first achievement in defining the minimum viable product for a grid-forming inverter. Before we had done this earlier this year, there was always a challenge of we didn't really know what the equipment providers could provide, and they really didn't know what we wanted. And therefore, it was really hard to define 
what was required for a synchronous generator through a grid forming inverter because there was this chicken and egg situation going on where we didn't know what the opportunities were and neither did the OEMs and the suppliers understand what it was that we needed. So through a lot of hard work, working with the key suppliers in this sector, looking at what it is that they thought the capability of their devices could be, us looking at what does it mean to have a synthetic replication of a conventional power plant. And by working together in that way, we've been able to define, as I say, for the first time anywhere in the world, this grid code requirement that that anybody now can pick up and go, well, if that is the minimum viable product, I can now invest in my supply chain, I can invest in my technology developments, such that we can bring forward new and innovative grid forming inverter type of technologies, hopefully drive down the cost because anybody can develop this. It's not just stuck with the original sort of OEMs and new people can come into the market. Hmm. So it's really exciting that we've got this minimum technical requirement, which is now defined that anybody can pick up. And what we hope to do and what we've seen, as I know we'll come on to later, is, is through our stability pathfinders, we are now seeing these devices becoming commercially available and bidding into our markets and bringing those to the system in the next few years. So what are the implications of this change to the grid codes? How will they help Britain decarbonize its grid power? So having this change in the grid code is a real step forward. In terms of now, it's clearly laid out there to anybody that's interested, developers, equipment manufacturers, what it is that we require as electricity system operator in GB for a grid forming inverter to do. And what it's basically doing, as we said earlier, this is looking to artificially replicate inertia and short circuit infeed that you conventionally get from a power station. So by having this now in code, it is very clear, as we said a moment ago, anybody in the world can go and have a look at what these requirements are. Therefore, if you want to participate in the GB markets to provide short circuit infeed inertia using a grid forming inverter, then it is very clear for everybody to see what is the minimum requirement that that grid forming inverter needs to do. Now, as they participate in the markets, obviously it's down to the developer and the equipment manufacturer. They can make the grid forming inverter more responsive or deliver a larger range of the performance, whatever. But what the grid code has done, it has said as a minimum, if you want to put a grid forming inverter on the system in Great Britain, then this is what the grid forming inverter must comply with. Okay, so having this specification out there and actually using these new tools now to to sense inertia characteristics and to monitor in very, very active ways the performance of the grid. This is helping you to understand where inertia is needed on the system as variable renewables are sort of coming and going from the system. Is that basically the idea? Absolutely, that's the idea. And there's two different characteristics that these grid forming inverters can provide. One is the short circuit infeed which is quite locational, actually, probably more regional and more locational than we perhaps thought a couple of years ago. And therefore, we are targeting specific regions where we need the short circuit infeed. Why don't you go ahead and just explain briefly what short circuit infeed means? So short circuit infeed is when you get a fault on the system, a system to earth fault, then current flows through the system to feed that fault. So it goes to earth. If you have a very lightly loaded short circuit infeed, 
then the system becomes unstable because it doesn't have anything robust to hold on to. But also, and probably more importantly, the protection systems that the transmission owners are operating possibly won't work either because they are looking for a change in current flowing across the circuit. And normally when you get the fault, it has a big inrush of current that's feeding this fault down through Earth and it recognizes that and it opens the brake and it protects the asset and obviously wherever this fault has occurred on the system. Hmm. So very lightly loaded short circuit infeed networks are inoperable because they're unstable but also they're inoperable because you don't get the short circuit infeed that you would need in order to secure the system. Hmm. Okay, so your ability to accurately estimate inertia and then to sense it and then to essentially activate grid-forming inverters to provide inertia when it's missing is sort of the core idea here. Yes, and it's doing that in a zero-carbon way because we can provide inertia and short-circuit infeed today, but that requires the continued running of gas or coal-fired power plants, which is obviously not zero-carbon and not on the path to 100% zero-carbon by 2035. So so the beauty about the grid-forming inverters is that generally they're connected to a battery or they could be connected to a wind farm. So again, they are zero-carbon. Mm-hmm. But we're also, through the same sort of market processes, we are also procuring anything that provides the need at zero carbon. So we do see more traditional synchronous compensators and condensers also, and flywheels also connecting to the system through that process. Right. So that brings us to this stability pathfinder project that you've had ongoing under your network options assessment or NOA initiative. What is the objective of the Stability Pathfinder project and what's involved in that? So we have been forecasting the decline in inertia and short circuit infeed for a number of years now. And we were debating on what is the right approach in order to provide and replace the decline in short circuit infeed and inertia. And if you look around the world, there's various ways to do this. So in Australia, AMO, if you're connecting a renewable farm, whether that be wind or solar in Australia, you as a developer need to make sure that you are not making the situation any worse. So therefore, you as the wind farm developer are also building a flywheel or a grid forming inverter or something else alongside your particular connection. Hmm. We decided in GB that actually we would let the developers develop the wind farm and do that in the most economic and low cost way possible. But what we would do as a system operator, we would see regionally and cumulatively when we were going to hit these various sort of key points in the decline of these particular services and then run a commercial market-based process in order to replace that decline in short circuit infeed and inertia. But we didn't define the solution. What we have defined is the need. So what is it that the system needs and when do they need it? Then we go to market, we do a request for information and say, look, by 2025 or whatever, this is the amount of inertia we need in this region. What are your options? Give us your technical data and your commercial data. And we run an assessment process and then a full commercial tender. And then at the end of that, we procure the technologies that provide the need in the locations where it's needed. So that allows, therefore, all of the developers and the equipment manufacturers to really innovate, to think about how do we build and make a device that provides that particular service in the most cost-effective and economic way possible. So this is really interesting. I think what's fascinating to me about this is that in the Australian system, as you mentioned, in the AMO system, and we've covered that in previous episodes, 
they've put the responsibility, the onus for system stability essentially on each generator. And so they're basically forcing a wind farm or a solar farm to act as if it were a synchronous generator from the perspective of the grid where it's connecting to it. Right. And that's something that I think a lot of people who are skeptical or maybe just not knowledgeable about the energy transition have assumed the way that things should work. For example, I've seen a lot of people over the years who don't believe in the energy transition or who think that nuclear plants are the only solution, (laughs) who insist that every single asset on the grid has to have 100% backup that's firm and reliable because wind farms and solar plants are variable in their output. And that's always just seemed confused to me because system stability is a system property. It's not a generator property. And all generators, no matter what type they are, no matter how they act, are subject to their own faults. They all have the ability to go offline or their own reasons for being unreliable at different times and in different ways. And so it's the responsibility of the system operator to sort of orchestrate the way that all of these assets are acting together on the system to amount to system stability. It's not the responsibility of each individual generator to provide system stability. And so you've basically baked that concept into your approach to this. We have indeed. And our view is is that building one synchronous condenser, one grid-forming inverter site that provides the short-circuit infeed inertia for several wind farms or solar farms, or whatever it might be, must be a more efficient way to do it because you're building a device once, mm. providing something that the system really needs rather than every individual wind farm and solar farm having to build their own flywheel or whatever individually across the network. So we believe this is the right way. Obviously, there's many ways to to solve this particular problem, but this we are very much market-led in Great Britain and certainly one of our ambitions as the electricity system operators that where there's value for the consumer, we should absolutely go to market and use competition to drive down costs for consumers. And this has been demonstrated through the Pathfinders also drive innovation, which again, ultimately drives down costs for consumers. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show are free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to trade body Renewable UK, the UK's pipeline of energy storage projects stood at more than 32 gigawatts in April, roughly double the total capacity recorded the previous year. More than half of the total consists of projects that are in the development or planning stages. Renewable UK reckons that the UK will need to have 30 gigawatts of flexible energy capacity by the end of the decade. It credits the expansion of the project pipeline to new rules that permit local planning authorities to approve projects over 50 megawatts in size for England and 250 megawatts for Wales. Previously, those projects required federal approval. The average energy storage project size is now 54 megawatts, and those projects predominantly use lithium-ion batteries. In April, the UK government also confirmed plans to create an independent public body called the Future System Operator, which will oversee the energy network and focus on tasks like integrating energy storage systems to improve grid security. Item 2. The energy storage pipeline is also burgeoning in the U.S. A new report from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory shows more than 1.1 terawatts of solar and energy storage capacity were in the U.S. power grid interconnection queue at the end of 2021. So-called hybrid solar plus storage plants accounted for 42% of solar projects in the queue at the end of 2021. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. XE Network.